Pastor Paul Baines has served as a senior police chaplain for the East uh, for East Palo Alto and East Menlo Park communities. He's served on the several boards of several uh, nonprofit uh, community organizations in our area, and he's currently the senior pastor of St. Samuel Church in East Palo Alto, the co-founder and president of Project We Hope, whose mission is to help people become healthy, employed, and housed using innovative solutions. And this is his third service of today, so please... Give it up for Pastor Paul Baines. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Kevin. Thank you so much. Um, you must be tired, man. <laughs> it's, it's, a long, it's a long Sunday for you. So, with the, so we were always thankful, and now we're especially grateful for your presence here amongst us. So, Thank um, you for having us. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Really appreciate it. And then just to point out that Morris Chubb, who is the chairman of your board, correct, That's is correct. also That's here. And Morris yeah. uh, has shared um, before a little bit of uh, some about Project We Hope. So, um, so first of all, thank you for coming and, and being a part of this series with us. Um, do you mind sharing just a very brief, just so our people can get to know you, a little brief background, your spiritual history, where you grew up? Um, how you came to this particular area. And the, the follow-up question that I want to ask is, how did you find yourself in this kind of work doing Project We Hope? So I know I, I want to hear a lot more of your story, but we'll do coffee later, and I'll just <laughs> inundate you with a bunch of questions. But for specifically for this series, your journey of faith and then your journey into this kind of work. Well, I'm a uh, third-generation uh, PK. That's preacher's kid for churchies. And... Um, I was born at the old Stanford Hospital four hospitals ago. There you go. Um, my, my card on my Stanford card says 000, then has numbers. So that's how old it is. Um, I grew up in the church in East Palo Alto. Um, my father was a pastor. My mother was a nurse over at Stanford um, Hospital for 30-plus years. And my father came here from Texas with two quarters in his pocket, got two jobs, and um, always um, instilled in all eight of his kids, four boys, four girls, I'm the last of the Mohegans, um, that it's all about work and it's about controlling your own destiny. And so um, he was a preacher. My father was very stern. He was from Texas, didn't speak twice. Um, my mother was very gentle. Um, they would say that you can wipe her mouth with a dirty sock and she wouldn't say a thing. But my father... It was a different story. He meant what he said, and he said what he meant. And so I grew up in him, but he was a very giving man. He would always give uh, people money on the street. Um, I would come home. I mean, I'd wake up in the morning on Sunday sometimes, and there would be people I'd never seen before sleeping on the floor of our house. Um, they were traveling evangelists or people he met that he just wanted to give a night's stay in our house. And um, he was always about giving um, and my mother was all about giving. They would serve in the senior citizens. So I grew up in the church, um, even though the church wasn't always a part of my life. I was actually known as probably one of the biggest party throwers in Northern California um, because PKs are typically can be some of the, I'm just going to be candid about it, worst kids on the earth because of all the pressures they live under um, with their father or mother being in ministry. And uh, I used to throw some pretty some pretty big parties uh, where actually four or 500 people would come. I have the 49ers and the Raiders there and, and what have you. So I w went to one extreme to the, from the other. So that's kind of like, but I eventually found the Lord um, at an early age and um, 
uh, went to our school to be ordained, licensed through the Churches of God in Christ, which is the largest um, African-American Pentecostal movement in the world. We're 6.5 million strong. And your previous guest, actually, El Eliade, was ordained out of our church. He was with us for about three years and what have you under, um, uh, under the leadership when I was the senior pastor. And um, I'm eight, I'm the f- four boys, four girls, the eighth child. And because my father was a pastor back in 64, he was pastoring. Uh, our church was in East Palo Alto. And um, he was a um, small church right out of the garage. And uh, it grew, oh, probably not more than 100 strong ever. Um, but we had a lot of love and care within our body and within our church. Um, I kind of got off into the family business, which was moving and storage, a trucking company, um, where we had Baines moving services, where we service some of the largest, um, tech companies around here, Hewlett Packard being one of them. So I was always into the community. We would hire people out of the community where, um, they were probably discriminated against, forgotten about, they were people who've been in jail, uh, people who've probably been on drugs as well, and, uh, but we would give them a chance to work with us. And uh, we'd always say, um, if you run into any problems or if you damage anything, believe me, you won't be fired immediately. <laughs> and we would train those that were considered outcasts. Mm, so. yeah. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of Project We Hope, then. How did that come about? Well, because my mother worked at the senior citizen's home, and, um, and she always would cook and serve meals there, uh, my family was all about giving back. Uh, that's what my father taught us, always remember where you came from. Um, regardless of what obstacles you may face, it's about still doing what the good book says. And, and my favorite scripture is John thirteen thirty four. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. And you reflect that love is an action word. It's, it's something that you do um, and be. And so because of their modeling of what it was to go serve the homeless, um, to go serve the seniors, that that was something that me and my wife, Cheryl, said in our mar- premarital counseling that we wanted to do a community center, we wanted to serve the homeless, and we wanted to uh, do education, a Christian preschool. Um, so those were the things that were, I've been married 27 years. And so, um, um, some of those things have come into fruition. So tell us uh, if you don't mind sharing, like, how do you get something like this started? Because so part of what we're trying to dig into are the economic realities. Um, homelessness is obviously a big issue in our particular area with the, the disparity and, you know, the RV, um, parks that we have in our particular area. And I'm kind of curious about the economic hurdles or challenges that you had to go through to get this kind of work done. I mean, this thing, this thing's incredible. I got to see it um, when you were launching it, but it costs money. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> and so I don't, I, I'm not looking for numbers, but what I'm looking for, I'm looking for an understanding of how you dig into economic realities when doing this particular work and, um, and how that shapes and, and informs projects like this, if that makes sense. Well, I guess because I probably didn't answer your first question, I'm going to zero back to that about the genesis. And 
in my rule book, you can either be part of the solution or you can be part of the problem. The Bible says you're either hot or you're cold. If you're lukewarm, he'll spew you out of your mouth. So choose a side is the bottom line. In our community, which is a marginalized community of East Palo Alto, um, you take, for instance, there, um, if you look at the law enforcement piece of things, there is historically people of color in law enforcement are on two different pages because of the atrocities, the abuse of power, things of that nature. And you look at how can you be more solution driven as opposed to problem consumed. And you want to be a part of that process of helping people, not hurting. And so we started like the chaplaincy. We hope stands for we help other people excel. So what we looked at was what are the systemic issues in this marginalized community that has not been addressed? Well, violence prevention. East Palo Alto was known as the murder capital of the United States per capita back in 1992 and 93, where we saw our friends shot, killed, things of that nature. And so we needed to be a part of that solution. Homelessness was another piece. It was we in the city of East Palto was the lar- had the largest amount of homelessness outside of San Mateo per capita in the whole county of San Mateo, um, the population. And so there was no homeless shelter. So we looked at, okay, let's address homelessness as well. And then out of that, we, we just didn't want to put what they call a hot in a cot, but we wanted to look at how can we provide services that address the specific needs that will get them back on that road to self-sufficiency. And so that means employment, that means mental health, that means drug addiction, that means cleanliness, and all those things play are key components in that trajectory to get them on that road to self-sufficiency. So that's what happens when they come to our shelter. We have a jobs program, we have classes. Um, Of course, they eat and they sleep there. We have case managers, which is a key element in helping the homeless get back on that road. And then our our board chair had came to me one day, Morris, and said, hey, Pastor, what about us doing, um, um, I got an idea about um, mobile hygiene. And I said, yeah, that's fine, that's fine. We, you know, we we, we talked about this before. We thought about that before with um, the Thai trucks. And what have you. And every time someone always wants to give me something to do all the time, as they say, give a busy person something to do to get it done. And so I always push back to people. If you got a great idea, you bring it to me. I said, that's a great idea. Let me see it in writing. And so Morris was serious. And so he went back and he put things down in writing and what have you. And Kane says, yeah, this, this is what I think we should be doing. And I said, that's a pregnant idea. That's something I, that's a saying I got from my grandfather who moved here from Louisiana. And I said, we need to give birth to it. And so we put our collective minds together and um, went to gather some of the other service providers because I'm a firm believer of this. None of us is as strong as all of us, period. And matter of fact, because I'm a preacher. Do it. What's the first three letters of the word Unity. You and I, right? You and I can make a difference. Huh? You and I can do the heavy lifting. It's much like the Bible says. It, two can do more than one, right? One will put 1,000 to flight. Two will put 10,000 to flight. And this is churchy's talk, y'all, for not who people who are unchurched in here. And so we're better together than we are apart. 
So we looked at who else was in the field that is actually serving the homeless and that is actually addressing the homeless problem and not just doing it for show or for dough, but they seriously have a passion pain point where they want to really help the homeless. Um, and, and then from there, we had some people who were obstacles, even churches that, oh, no, you're just enabling or you're just doing that. Well, that was 1990, what was it? 19, 2015. And so... We, we got one truck, then now we have five trucks. And we have eight countries, um, 46 cities, and 29 states that have inquired about this particular project, this particular service, who either want us to come there or show them how to do it. And we've had people come from all around the world to look at this model, and we shared our best practice with this because we want to help people help people, period. You know. That's incredible. Um, you are a Pentecostal preacher, self-confessed. Um, love mm. it. Oh, I'm feeling it already. Our, the main question we've been wrestling with is what do you see is the economic vision of Jesus? Our, our work is grounded in the person, work, faith, life, ministry, teachings of Jesus. And I would love to hear your articulation um, of the way you see the vision, the economic vision that Jesus has, and then tie it to the work that you're doing, I suppose. Can I do that in reverse? Sure, absolutely. So with me, um, I like to create, first of all, awareness, because a lot of people, they have a heart and they want to help, but they don't know how to help. They may not know who to help. So create awareness, whatever you're passionate about, whatever that pain point that resonates with your spirit. Um, be aware of the issue. And so we create awareness first and foremost. Then we educate um, because they think all homeless people are on drugs or what have you. No, homeless people look just like you and I. We have homeless people who have made $185,000 the year before that have their PhD. Um, they just ran into some bad challenges of life. Um, this is a very costly place to live here. And so homelessness has gone up in the last couple of years. The other thing is, after we educate them, then we hope that they will give of their time. You know the three T's. Get their hands dirty, much like Spark has done. You have come over to our shelter. You have served food to the homeless. Homeless just want someone to talk to them some of the times. You know, they just want to be respected. They want someone to look them in the eye and, and treat them with the dignity that they deserve. Not look past them, not look through them, but look at them. Um, then we want some um, others to give of their time um, because that's really important. There are things you may not have a lot of money, but you, maybe you have a certain skill set that you can give. And I'm not just talking about homeless. I'm talking about any nonprofit, any pain point. But in our case, we want people to give up their time, come volunteer, or maybe come do an educational class, a teaching, things of that nature. Then, of course, the lights have to stay on. Um, in my book, and I'm Pentecostal, we pay tithes, okay? Uh, tithes is 10% or more. Um, sometimes people stay on 10%. That's great and fine. That's, uh, if that was float your boat, go ahead and do that. Um, we believe people should give into causes that are really are making an impact in the world. Um, homelessness, as you can see, is a growing need, uh, particularly in the Bay Area. We have a Bay Area crisis. And so 
we can't do it alone. We can't do it by ourselves. We can't do it with just our church offerings, but we can do it with resources from other foundations, from corporations where you work. There are ways where if you work at Google or Facebook, they match your gift if you give to a nonprofit. Um, and so there are various ways in on-ramps that can be created to where your dollar can become $2 or $3 when you give to any um, uh, service provider that's out there that's a 501c3. So my belief is that Jesus looked at the lady with the two mites. She gave all she had. I'm not telling anybody to give all you have, but she gave all she had when she went to give the offering um, in the synagogue. And she said, I mean, Jesus said that when those two mites dropped in the bucket, this lady gave more than those people who are writing a thousand dollars check because it was how she gave. Because God says he loves, the Bible says he loves a cheerful giver, not someone that's going to be grudgingly oh, here or someone's going to be average. Hey, I gave a thousand dollars today. Look at me. Look what I did. And trying to make someone else look bad. This is my, my belief. I believe that I teach my kids to give to our church and to our nonprofit and to other nonprofits out there. Sow seeds because God will bless you for sowing seeds. Ironically, now I'm a preacher, so, you know, I'm going, you got to pull me back in. Ironically, I preached on, um, Luke 12 today, uh, talking about the rich fool. I'm not calling anybody a fool. So, you know, chill out here. But he, he didn't have the right mind. He, he made money, and it's okay to have money. It's okay to be rich and what have you. But it's not okay for the richness to have total control of you. It's not okay for money to have you to where you cannot be a good steward and bless others with that. I believe God put each and every one of us, each and every one of us has a purpose on this earth. Some of us haven't discovered what that purpose is. Each and every one of us has a gift that God wants to use. That gift is not for you. That gift that he blessed you with is for others. And he wants you to use that gift. I'm not just talking monetarily. I'm talking about also your time and your talent as well. You mentioned so many things, like one of the pieces of the puzzle. I've often struggled with this. Even the phrase, the homeless, feels too distancing and too othering, like using that phraseology in my mind. Um, Because you mentioned that people are people, regardless of their residential status. Um, and I think so, so often we categorize people based upon particular external factors and things like that. And so when you're talking about looking people in the eye and giving them dignity and things like that, um, that to me feels like one of the most important aspects of what you do. And when I talk to people like you who are doing this work, it isn't just giving people a meal. It's giving people dignity. I mean, you call this thing dignity on wheels, right? And um, I'm kind of curious. So I, I, first of all, that just seems like faith and philanthropy 101, the dignity of the person that you are serving and the dignity of yourself and the, the joint dignity of that. I'm kind of curious, where does that come from, from your perspective? Why is it um, from your perspective that we, it's so easy to dismiss people and call, like to label them as homeless or to label them as lazy or label them as you, you deserve this. And what is the remedy to that from some of your work? Cause that, that to me seems like one of the major mental perspective hurdles to get over is just the recognition that people are people wherever they are, regardless of their, their status. Well, I truly believe that social media can be good and it can be bad. 
um, it can be good when it, it really drills down and looks at what are the systemic causes of why we are where we are. It can be bad when you look at media on television, on the movies, where they portray people of color a certain way, they portray homeless a certain way, they portray immigrants a certain way, or they portray people that are considered to be poor. And so that, I believe, imprints in people's minds subliminally. I think they get stuck on that, and they feel, oh, look at that person, he's begging. Um, well, you don't know what that person has been because you haven't walked in that person's shoes. And one thing I learned about from my father is that, you know, the old saying is never judge a book by the cover. And that's both when someone's well-dressed and someone that may be poorly dressed and with poor hygiene. Regardless, they're still a human being. When he said by this, all men shall know you by my disciples, that's the actions that you take, not the actions of others. And so I don't look at someone acting up, someone that's dually diagnosed, that's on meth or that's on crack or that's an alcoholic or has mental challenges. I don't look at them as not being a human being. They're a human being that just needs a little bit more love, a little bit more care, and a little bit more direction. And if we all can just take off the blinders, put on our spiritual eyeglasses, and look at every person as being equal in God's eyes and our eyes, I think we would get to see that, wow, this person wasn't the person I thought they were. This person is not as bad as I thought they were. Um, in some cases, not as good, unfortunately, <laughs> as we thought they were. Right, right. So I, you have to humanize the, 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 the issue um, and we say that in police work because like, we started the chaplaincy because we wanted to connect people of color um, in the police department because there were too many issues of violence. And it's still happening, but we started this 14, 15 years ago now um, where we are the chaplain for Palo Alto, East Palo Alto, and Menlo Park. And we saw where the police officers were looking at kids that were in red and blue as Nortanio, Serranios, or Bloods and Crips. And then on the opposite side, one day I wear my uniform to school, a police uniform. And the kids said, Pastor Paul, or they call me Double P. That's for Pastor Paul. Because I'm old school. I don't allow kids to call me by my first name, so I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm kind of old-fashioned that way. They got to put a handle on that. So Uncle Paul, Pastor Paul, whatever. Um, so they, they saw me in my police uniform, and they're like, you're a cop? You mean all this time I've been talking to you, a cop? So I'm saying, Jose, so what does that mean? Does that make me a bad person? No, but you're a cop, and I've been talking to you about all kind of stuff, you know, stuff he's been doing and all that stuff. I said, you know what? I agree with your mindset that there are some cops out there who have bad tactics. We've seen this across because now it's been happening since, since law enforcement was law enforcement. We're just catching it on video, newsflash for some of you all. So... I said, does that make me a bad person? I said, there are some cops out there, though, that do do bad tactics, but there are also some bad pastors. Hello. There's some bad teachers. There's some bad parents that abuse their kids. And so there's bad in every sector out there. And, and so it got them to think, because you have to meet people where they are. 
whether they're homeless, whether they're a gang member, whether there's um, uh, wherever they are, you need to meet them where they are and not prejudge them and not also feel that you have the absolute answer for their problem as well. You know, you cannot be the great black, white, Chinese, whatever Asian authority coming in there with your preconceived ideas. Come in to learn, come in to listen and come alongside. That's, I would say, is one of the best things people can do. Oh, that's brilliant and wonderful. I, I want to, let's, let me see if I heard you correctly, because I think, I think it was this key cornerstone of that whole piece that you just shared, that you started off by saying the discipleship is fundamentally about who I am and how I act and how I behave, not fundamentally about a judgment that I make about somebody to whom I'm supposed to show love and kindness and grace. It's fundamentally about my identity. I am a disciple of Jesus. I am to love my neighbor, and that's the, the fullness, full stop, that's the identity, and that's the place that pushes us hopefully past all of the biases and the stereotypes and the judgments that we make. Yeah. And, and, and see, there's also reverse discrimination. There's people of color that automatically think that white folks are always going to be racist and always going to be prejudiced against them. And we have to be careful because we can't judge that way either. Judging is bad. In Corinthians, it talks about judging. And so if you can come alongside, just meet somebody where they are, talk to them, get to know them, then you will understand where they're coming from. Yes, there are privileges that people do take advantage of. Yes, there is racism. Yes, there is sexism. Yes, there is homophobia. There's all this going on out there. That's a fact. But if you want to dispel those things, it starts with you as an individual. First of all, loving God, as they said in the song, with all your heart, mind, and soul, and then loving your neighbor as you love yourself. The challenge is many of us don't know how to love ourselves. And if you don't know how to love yourself, it's harder for you to love someone else. Okay, I want to ask a, a challenging question, which is this. What are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing um, doing this particular work, whether it's Dignity on Wheels or Project We Hope? What are some of the things that, the realities that you have to face, whether they be economic realities, um, whether they be logistical realities? I, I'm kind of curious about the economics of it. And economics, not just the financial piece. But the ways in which people make decisions, the behaviors, the choices that you have to make, the realities in which you live. And I'm just kind of curious what are the challenges that you have to face or the challenges that are emerging that you're seeing and how are you having to re-envision your work moving forward? So we started off, you know, 20 years ago, and we never would have thought that um, the challenges that we are facing today with the Bay Area housing crisis and homelessness on steroids you know, gentrification happening on steroids. And so getting people, they have a heart um, in our community that want to help the people of the community um, is one thing. But getting and developing and, and scaling, now that's a, that's a, that's a bigger challenge. Um, because we can do what we can do with what we have. But we need people who have, have experience in areas that maybe we have, uh, it's uncharted territories for us. We're looking to scale some of our services. We are already in, um, in the Bay Area. We're in three counties now and 14 cities um, with our Dignity on Wheels program and our case managers. Um, the demand is great. We are a fiscal agent for other nonprofits. Well, we, we are looking to scale even that much further, and we need to get people in here who have that type of experience 
um, in actual scaling, whether they're consulting or that that's just their field of expertise or not. Um, HR and development. We actually hire the homeless. We don't just get them housed, which is important, but our mission is, is to get them healthy, employed, and housed. So we actually hire some of them, some of the drivers in there, some of our shelter workers um, that are working. Um, there are formerly homeless people. Some have their degrees, some don't. Some have education, some have minimal education, but they do have the right attitude. And then we like to say, don't let your attitude hinder your altitude. If you have the right attitude, that will, that's 90% of any job. But if you don't have that, the right attitude, then no matter how skilled you are, how much money you have, you're only going to be able to go so far and in, in in working in our culture. Yeah. Because our culture is, is really trying to help the least of these. I love it. I mean, that's a great Silicon Valley challenge is to scale the thing that you've got and now take it to the next level. So you're, you're doing exactly what our, our region likes to do. Um, I have one more question. And as before, I would love if any of you have some questions to ask Pastor Paul. So here's my one question. Can you, you mentioned um, that which we do together is more impactful. I, you said it much more eloquently than I just said. But if we work together. And I'm just kind of curious if you can share a little bit about what the Partnership for the Bay's future is. You are part of this cohort of some pretty amazing people across the Bay that are really trying to do something about this housing crisis. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing just a very brief snippet as to what exactly this is and what is Project We Hope's uh, role and your role in this endeavor. You're pretty good, man. You, see, we need someone with, that's tech savvy like that to come in and, and do this kind of stuff. I have the video, too, if you want to, but we're running out of time. So. One, one, one of our challenges is that we are so sometimes can be so busy doing the tactical um, that it's hard to focus on the strategic. Um, and so what this is, this is, you know, Priscilla Chan, that's Mark Zuckerberg's wife, and that's Fred, the CEO of the San Francisco Foundation, and... and um, uh, she's the head of the Kaiser, last name is Chang, and then that's the moderator, and then that's Jennifer, Dr. Martinez. So we've been working on stuff for about 18 months um, at looking at homelessness and the Bay Area housing crisis. And uh, what was the hope really was, we didn't hit that mark, was really to try to raise um, $2, billion, uh, $2 billion, might have been $1 billion. But we, at, at this particular event, this is faith, partnership, private partnership, and the public is not really in there, but there are public, there are people in the cities that are working with us, and is to really address the systemic issue of housing uh, and the Bay Area crisis. And it was to establish a fund that will be used in a variety of different ways. Um, many of you may not know, but typically the faith-based community is one of the largest landowners outside of the school districts in any community, whether they're Buddhists, whether they're uh, Jewish, whether they're Baptist, whatever, Protestant, Catholic. And so we brought that to their attention of you can't leave the faith community out of this solution because actually we're probably your best solution at addressing this issue. Um, and it's not a one shoe that fits all. 
And so we created this collaborative, um, and, and it's talking about preservation, it's talking about protection, and it's also talking about production of housing. We have to preserve what's already in place. We have to protect what's always that's already in place in the way of affordable housing. Now, as you heard me say, if you looked at that video, I will talk about the elephant in the room. I'm not scared of anyone or anybody about talking about anything. That's just how I was raised. And so in talking with like Priscilla, she is, I don't, I don't know what you think about Mark or whatever, but Priscilla has a heart of gold. She is genuinely caring and concerning about the education system, about the housing crisis, and about homelessness. And so she is putting her money, her and Mark are putting their money where their mouth is in a variety of different ways that is not even public. Um, she knows that the faith community has power. She's brought her entire staff over to our office at least four or five times to talk with us and get our insight, our opinion, and work with us to solve these systemic problems. So that is a good start. It's not the complete picture, though. We need everybody. Again, none of us is as strong as all of us. Um, and it takes everybody's thoughts. It takes everybody's expertise. It takes everybody's resources to come together and really come up with well-rounded solutions. I don't like to say affordable housing because to me, affordable housing is relative on who can afford it. So I say Eli housing. Eli housing to me, not Eli out of the Bible, but Eli is extremely low income housing. So that's for the working poor. That's for the homeless. That's for the somebody that's making $25 an hour that can actually have an affordable place to live in. I say affordable because that's the, the terminology and nomenclature that most people use, but then I go right to Eli. So you got extremely low income, very low income, low income, then affordable, then market rate. So if you look at market rate and affordable, they're at the very top. Well, the people that we're serving, they're at the very bottom. So I like to make it kind of clear for people where you're talking about helping in the way of housing, because truth be told, we're not going to solve the homeless problem until we change the policies. Now, this is going to get some, I'm going to get in somebody's backyard right now. NIMBYism is alive and well. Some of you probably in here don't want to have a homeless person around you, and that's your right. God bless you. Um, but... <laughs> Homeless people deserve the same rights as all people. Immigrants deserve the same rights as all people. Single parents deserve the rights just like all people. And when we can kind of just get to know the person and find out that this person, that they have a heart just like you do, they have issues just like you do, they have challenges just like you do, you'll find that you have probably have more in common than you do apart. If we can just change the optics on what we think, what we've been trained by our mind, by what we saw in the movies or what you heard somebody else say, I'm not saying there hasn't been some bad apples out there, but there's been ap the key is that there's been bad apples in the church, bad apples in the police department, <laughs> bad apples in the schools, bad apples in our own households. So let's not just ostracize one particular sector. All right. 
I totally bless you for that and for your leadership and your voice. I mean, um, Jesus is being invited to the table of one of the greatest crises and challenges that we're facing in Silicon Valley. And so bless God for your leadership and, and may, may that vision and voice be amplified in this work. So we pray blessings over you. Does anybody have a question for Pastor Paul? Don't be scared. Ivan. Uh, repeat the question, if you would, please, sir. Can I comment on the different types of homelessness? Well, as you can see, as of late, um, I mean, if you look at San Mateo County, homelessness was actually going down a few years ago. Um, and the, what's the reason why? It's because we came together in a, a much more synergistic approach to addressing homelessness, being different service providers, being the public-private partnership. In Santa Clara, it was going up um, because... Actually, in Santa Clara, they didn't have their act together as much as they did in San Mateo County, just to be candid about it. And so you have homeless um, individuals that have been chronically homeless for 10 and 15 years. And yes, you could say, well, he's never or she's never going to change, but that's not actually true. I've met people in the field of dreams in the city of East Palo Alto or people in the creek or wherever I may go where the homeless gather. And I'm not just talking about me, but our staff. And yes, some people have taken three or four years to build up a relationship to where now they trust us that we're not a flyby that is you want to do good. Oh, here, here's a gift card. You did good. And then you said you're going to come back and you never came back again to talk with them or that they've been ostracized because they got on public transportation, they've been made fun of. So they, they distance themselves and then they have a fear amongst people because people have hurt them, people have lied to them, people have said they're gonna do stuff and they didn't do stuff. And so there's chronically homeless, then there's severely mentally ill homeless, those that have a, a severe mental challenge um, because of one, they could have been living outside for so long, or two, they were just born that way. Um, and they end up being ostracized by their own biological family. Um, then there's people who've been forced out of their apartment um, or their house. They lost their house, uh, foreclosed on them. Um, and so they've been kicked out and they've been forced to now live in their car, on the street, in a van, or in an RV. Um, so those are the various does that answer your question, Ivan? Those are the various types of homelessness. Yes. So she asked, um, she said, thank you for the safe parking RV program, which we're proud to say again, being innovative, that's the first one of its kind in the country. Um, it's, again, it's always about being solution driven as opposed to problem consumed. Um, advice that I would give other cities and communities, well, um, State Senator Berman um, asked us to speak to his um, territory of mayors, uh, and we did this about, I don't know, two months ago, um, because they wanted to know about the Safe Parking Initiative. And so we did that, and we said some of the challenges are, in this case, we have to get these communities together. Even within the community of homelessness, there can be some some differences amongst themselves. So you have to establish that trust. In working with the cities, you need to tell them, hey, these people are human beings. They deserve a right to at least, if they're being forced out of their house, or forced out of their apartment, they at least deserve a right, because they're residents of the city, 
to at least park their vehicle somewhere. So before you institute a ban on oversized vehicles, that you need to have a place for them to park their vehicles. So let's take some of the general fund money. Let's get some federal um, money. Let's get some county fund money and let's get some state money. Let's access that and then put that into a program in which case Project We Hope has helped numerous other um, nonprofits to develop a safe parking program in their community. Um, again, we want to be a part of that solution and not part of the problem. So we're willing to help you develop that on your own, or if you want us to be your fiscal agent, we will do that with you. Does that answer your question? Okay. Okay. We're. Um, I, I really hate to put a time lim limit on a Pentecostal preacher. Um, if you could, mm. if you could, in like just sixty seconds, sum up. You have a, a beautiful group of people here who care deeply about these. What advice, encouragement, spiritual guidance, uh, sermon in in sixty seconds would you give us um, that? comes from your work and your philosophy and your theology from all of this. I would love for you to just give us that last exhortation. Okay. 60 seconds, huh? Um, there's another story in the Bible. It's called the Good Samaritan. Don't be like the pastor, the priest, the Levite, and walk by that homeless person. And I'm not saying don't give them money, but pr at least see them eye to eye, look them in the eye, pray for them, um, and then go back to your job, go back to your faith community, and ask the question, what can we do to address, in this case, homelessness? Um, I believe the Good Samaritan, you know, Samaritans were ostracized. They weren't the people that people really liked, but yet it was a Samaritan that showed the most amount of compassion to that stranger that was beat up on that road to Jerusalem. Let's be like that. that Pastor the Samaritan. Paul, thank you so much. Again, Pastor Paul, thank you so much for coming and sharing with us your wisdom, your insight. Most of all, we bless God for your leadership and the work that you're doing. Um, and for all of you who have participated in volunteering for Project We Hope, we bless and honor you as well. God's doing some amazing things, and that's part of the reason why we've been doing the service. Thank you, all of you, for participating in that. Now, as we go off together, um, Sparkers, may you, based upon this commission, not walk by anybody without recognizing and honoring their dignity their worth, their value as a human being. And may we, as people of faith, as followers of Jesus, bring forth a whole new way of being Jesus' followers, which is really not new at all, which is to spread and explode this vision of humanity to bring justice and dignity and hope and salvation to all. And I pray this and bless you and bless the Lord in his name. And everybody said, amen.